Welcome, Welcome to, to Podities, your home for strange stories, odd events, weird history, bizarre tales, unique places, and different perspectives. That's Meg. And that's Cal. And this is our ode to the odd. So we want to take a break before we get into um, all the fun stories that we're going to share and just take a minute to break the ice a little bit and uh, recommend anything that we've read or watched lately. And you were actually just telling me what you had finished watching last week? Yes. Tony and I, my husband, just finished watching the third season of The Good Place. The, it's Like I said, it's Kristen Bell and Ted Danson. He is an architect that creates places for The Good Place. There's a good place and the bad place. And Kristen Bell, Eleanor, wakes up and she died. And she's in The Good Place. But they made a mistake and she's actually a really terrible person. And she has to earn her place there so people don't find out that she's supposed to be in the bad place. Oh. And one of her neighbors is a philosophy professor. So he tries to teach her how to be good. And it's actually really good. Mm. I got into she's it She's really a very quick. talented actress. She is. And I love when she cries over sloths. <laughs> have you seen that? Yes, I have. Wasn't that a birthday present? Um, I don't know. Or something. No? I know she went on Ellen, and Ellen yeah. was like, we have a sloth, and she started crying, and she was like, I'm just kidding, we don't. Oh. <laughs> I don't remember that part. Um, we started watching, oh, did you get a chance to watch the, what was it called, Hyperdrive? We haven't yet. Okay, no. it's, uh, like I said, it's a bit Fast and the Furious, but it's filmed locally. I don't know if there are any locals listening to this. I believe it was out in Kodak Park. And they did it at night. The obstacle courses are lit up with lights. And um, it's really interesting. They set up a challenge course that involves different elements. It's almost like, um, oh my goodness, what are those machines? Where the marble rolls down the hill and hits the domino. Oh, oh shit. Yeah. Those. Those, yeah. yeah. So in one of the last episodes we watched, they had to drive the car up onto a lift, and then the weight from the car would swing it down so that way they could drive forward more. Oh, that sounds terrifying. It's really neat to watch. Uh, there was a lot of different people that they pulled from all over the world, so it wasn't just local people that brought their own cars, and that's part of what made the show interesting was what um, modifications they had done to the cars, whether or not, say, they were waterproof. There's water mm. in one of the levels, and cars that didn't have the waterproofing underneath, um, the engines started shorting and other technical things that I can't explain. <laughs> but, no, it's, it's really fun so far. It's kind of a good, like, uh, just sit down at the end of the night, mm. turn your brain off, and just watch fast things go. <laughs> <laughs> um I wanted to recommend a series called The Foundling Series by Haley Edwards. I recently finished her Beginner's Guide to Necromancy series, and it helped get me out of a serious depressive slump that I wanted to read more. So I went and bought the four books so far in this series, and I devoured them. It's urban fantasy, but a bit higher fantasy. It's very unique. It's really difficult to explain without spoiling anything because everything's revealed in such a great way throughout the story but the main character's name is loose um there's dragons it's hmm. it's really awesome so i recommend both of those series is that it i think that's yeah Maybe it's because we didn't talk about Halloween. We're not like gabbing, gabbing, gabbing. I do That's have um, book recommendations for the episode that I'll read at the end to talk about some of the sources where I got some of my information. Awesome. But I guess without further delay, we can uh, get going. So we're going to start our second episode by talking about Fantastic Beasts. Yes. Not the movie, although it's amazing. Um, and Eddie Redmayne is fantastic. We're also Team Jacob, but not Twilight Jacob. Oh my god, I was gonna say. Jacob Kowalski, he owns the bakery. You've probably, I know you haven't seen it, but you might have seen in some of the clips in the trailer for it. There's oh, a bakery maybe. at the end. He's just the most fantastic character. He's a muggle that's brought into the magic world, and he thinks everything is just spectacular. He has an amazing disposition. He's wowed by everything. It's 
It's a bit like um, seeing the joy in kids' eyes at Bubbles. That's mm. how he reacts to this magic world, and you just kind of go along for this ride uh. with him because it exists in the Harry Potter world, but it's unique enough that it was... I, f- I felt like it was a brand new adventure, as cheesy as that sounds. No, I get it. Um, okay, so the other kind of fantastic piece that we're going to talk about are mythological creatures throughout folklore and legend... Um, they occur throughout history in every country and every culture. One theory that I find particularly interesting, and it's probably the psych major in me, and you were a psych major for a little while, Yeah, right? I started as one. Okay, yeah. so you'll probably find this really interesting. Um, the theory proposes that mythological creatures are actually a production of our psyche created out of our inherited instinctive <laughs> instinctive fear of the most dangerous animals or predators around. I hadn't heard this theory before. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's really cool. Um so what I what I thought we would do is kind of keep this theory in mind as we go through the different mythological creatures and it kind of helps us see where these legends really came from, why they held on, why were they so popular for so long, especially for being fantasy. So, first up is the griffin. It's a hybrid creature composed of the body and back legs of a lion and the wings, beak, and talons of a hawk or an eagle. This means that it's composed of two kings, as in king of animals and king of birds. This animal was thought to be especially impressive and has long been associated with treasure and gold. The griffin was a prominent creature in Greek literature, but also appeared in Iranian, Persian, and ancient Egyptian mythology. Historians believe that the griffin could have been inspired by early encounters with fossils. Incorrectly interpreted as some type of beastly bird, dinosaur bones could easily have been an influence in the creation of these creatures. I find it especially interesting now that we know more about dinosaurs and are finding out that many have feathers. Had feathers. Well, technically have feathers. There's birds. Yeah. But, yeah. Sure. So, after... Oh, not after. Another mythological creature that is also believed to have some basis in fossils is the dragon. We were actually just talking about bearded dragons. Yes. Earlier. I want one. Do you know much about them? Not really. No, I don't either. They're adorable. Maybe somebody will know. (laughs) So, dragons are typically described as a four-legged, two-winged, fire-breathing beast, and the creature differs according to where the legends are being told. Middle Eastern accounts might grant the creature the head of a lion, while in India the head could be an elephant. The color, size, and ability also varies. It's likely the Eastern legends stemmed from encounters with real living animals, like monitor lizards, which can grow to be nearly twice the size of a Komodo dragon. And, of course, we know that certain dragons, like in Shrek, breed with donkeys. <laughs> Another fun fact for you. What would you consider that? <laughs> Don't even know. So, fully grown, a monitor lizard weighs in at 170 to 200 pounds and can measure up to eight and a half feet long, while the Komodo dragon averages eight feet. That's between the male and female of the adults, and they average 170 pounds. Both can travel at a speed of 12 miles per hour on land, which is just enough to kind of scare me. Yes, yeah, Like, how fast, you know, the grizzly bear situation... You don't have to be the fastest. You just have to be faster than the slowest. Right. (laughs) And I would definitely be the slowest, so. One last gigantic nonfiction animal that inspired dragon legends takes us to China, where giant crocodiles inspired myths of flood dragons. In case you were curious again, let's look at some quick stats on giant crocodiles. The largest one ever held in captivity measured 20 feet and 3 inches long and weighed in at 2,370 pounds. This thing sounds like it belongs in Australia. The thing sounds awesome. What? No, it's Australia all the way. Crocodiles are You so really cool, want though. a crocodile? You've seen Lake Placid. Yeah, man. You really... They're not going to eat bread and nibble on your toes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they might nibble on your toes, but uh, you're not getting them back. Yeah, no. 
So one of the mythologies that we haven't visited yet, but it's one of my favorite, is the Norse. And it might surprise you to learn that the origins of the Kraken date back to a giant fish in Norse mythology named, wait for it, Leonard. Not, re not really. I just don't know how to pronounce this. We, we have, there was no pronunciation guide anywhere that I could find. Um, it's spelled H-A-F-G-U-F-U. And I would read it Hafgufu because I butcher everything, but Hafgufu. Yeah. it's never, it's never pronounced the way that it looks. So that's why I called it Leonard <laughs> in it. I'm not, not an offensive way. So it's plausible that these stories originated from sightings of gigantic octopus or squid off the coasts of Norway and Greenland. According to legend, the creature was so large that when any part of it stuck out of the water, it resembled an island. Now, we're all accustomed to mythology taking a tale and spinning it into an epic story to teach us a lesson, so it might surprise you to find out that these tales may, in fact, be inspired by true, actual giant squids. Paleontologists believe that there really were 100-foot-long cephalopods in the prehistoric oceans. That's three school buses, 1.4 white houses, or just over 18 people of average height today. Today, giant squids have the largest eyes of any animal studied, averaging in at the size of a basketball. Oh, my God. And that's today's stats. That's not colossal squid from days of old. I can't even imagine how much larger that would be. That is, that's, that's why 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was so scary. Forget the giant crocodile. I want a giant squid. That's awesome. No, little ones are cute. Like the ones that escape out of portholes on boats and stuff. <laughs> Not these gigantic things. You'd fit what? Like maybe a couple in like the Finger Lakes? Yeah. We could try. <laughs> you never know what's at the bottom. But we're going to stay back in time really quickly to, to explore the last fantastic beast we're going to talk about, which is the unicorn. Okay, so speaking of unicorn... <laughs> How is it? Okay, two animals. Realistic or not realistic? One, the unicorn, basically a horse with a bone on its head. Mm -hmm. Like a narwhal. Seems super realistic, right? Yeah. Of course not. Animal number two, an animal that has a neck on average six feet long that weighs 600 pounds. Doesn't sound plausible, right? Giraffe. <laughs> what even? <laughs> I didn't think you were going with giraffe. How are unicorns not real, but we have such other crazy creatures? I thought you were going for narwhal, and then you oh, said no. six foot long neck, and I'm like, what narwhal? Because I was going to go, goodbye, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> nah, giraffes, man. Oh my gosh, yeah. But so, at least with the at least with the narwhal, it's, it's a tooth. So if they lose it, it grows back because it's bone. That's disgusting. Which, so if you apply that to um, a unicorn... What would its purpose have been? I mean, I do agree that it's a very much more plausible animal, but I just kind of wonder, like, were they, would that have meant that they were, like, vicious? Like, narwhals use it, I believe, to poke through the ice. That makes sense. What would, what would a unicorn do? Why do we have to tell a unicorn how to live its life? I don't know. <laughs> okay, we'll get back to it then. So, tales of unicorns exist in as many cultures as I can count, from the Middle Ages in Europe to India and China and the Islamic world. It turns out that these majestic beings aren't just popular today, they've been a consistent topic across time and space. Artwork containing unicorns can be dated back to Mesopotamia in the 5000 to 3500 BCE range, and references in literature can be found in 400 BCE in Greece. It was within this same culture that the first known reference in text to the unicorn exists. Uh, wait for it, it's a little weird. So it's not just the unicorn, however, that is of interest. The alicorn, the spiraled horn protruding from the horse-like creature's head, was believed for centuries to have healing properties. Proximity to the horn was sometimes enough. However, many recipes call for the ingestion in some way of part of the horn. Written by a Greek physician and historian, who I can't pronounce, the first and earliest iteration of the unicorn was recorded as being the size of a horse... Okay, wait mm -hmm. for it. Ready? White body. Yeah. Okay. Purple head. Of course. Blue eyes. 
and the horn was three colors. Hmm. Funny enough, it's believed that these writings were actually describing India, and the creature was a wild animal, just wasn't actually a unicorn like they thought. There's a few creatures that might have been mistaken for a unicorn over time, and I'm sure you could probably guess a couple of them. I mean, we talk, talked about one. Horses. Narwhals. Narwhals. I just can't. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you think of another one? What I mean, what other animals have horns? Putting you on the spot. Don't put me on the spot like that. We talk, We love them when they scream. Well, goats, yeah. Goats, yeah. 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 Um, rhinos. Yeah, that's Elephants, true. anything with, you know, yeah. horns. So there's a few that they think might have been the inspiration. Um, the two most prominent and easy to understand are, like I said, the rhino and the narwhal, but that's not all. In Arabia, <laughs> ready? There's a wild ass called a camphor, and near the Red Sea is a goat. Which I forgot to look up pronunciation. Pirasupi. No. Para. Pirasup. Nope. Pis, nope. Don't want to insult it. Almost called it pistachio. Not trying to be rude. We're skipping that word. Both of which have horns that are believed to possess medicinal properties. To cure wounds or venomous bites, you can take two long spiral horns from a goat, infuse it in water for about seven hours, and then drink. It sounds delicious, right? Yum. Cups reportedly made from unicorn horn, which were likely rhino tusk, were valued for their protection against poison. These cups served as an early warning system by detecting poisoned drinks. Upon detecting poison, some were thought to change color, which color changing cups, that's a real thing, sweat, and shake. That one... I don't really understand. And what I what I also don't understand is that Queen Elizabeth had one that she drank out of, and reportedly it was supposed to explode if it detected poison. So, but they didn't say to what extent or how. But I hear, like, so if you, you dr- your drink is poisoned and you have something to detect the poison to keep you from drinking the poison, and it explodes... That could kill you, right? I mean, what's the... (laughs) Uh, Okay, but the benefits don't stop there. It was believed that the alicorn could cure plague, fevers, poisonous bites, mad dog bites, so rabies, and it could restore lost strength, and you can't see the air quotes, a.k.a. they valued it as an aphrodisiac, because what hasn't been used as an aphrodisiac throughout the ages? Humans have uh, come up with some interesting ways of using things. So while we're on the subject of Queen Elizabeth and other fun history, here is a few, three to be exact, fun facts about life in the 1500s. So this is setting the scene. Let me know. What do you got? First thing, most people got married in June because they took their yearly bath in May and still smelled pretty good by June. I like the standard, pretty good. Pretty good. However, they were starting to smell, so brides carried a bouquet of flowers to hide the body odor. The baths consisted of a big tub filled with hot water. The man of the house had the privilege of the nice, clean water, then all of the other sons and men, then the women, and finally the children. Last of all, the babies. By then, the water was so dirty, you could actually lose someone in it, hence the saying, don't throw the baby out with the bath water. Current moms, don't feel guilty if you don't wash your child on a daily basis. It could have been worse. (laughs) Fact two. Houses had thatched roofs. Thick straw piled high with no wood underneath. It was the only place for animals to get warm, so all the dogs, cats, and other small animals, mice, rats, and bugs, lived in the roof, which is a really comforting thought. When it rained, it became slippery, and sometimes the animals would slip and fall off the roof. (laughs) Hence the saying, it's raining cats and dogs. I have always wondered where that came from. Oh, inside or did they, did, did they fall inside the house too or just on the outside? I, I would hope just the outside. (laughs) Can you imagine waking up to just all of those things falling on you? I was imagining sitting in like a corner, like knitting or something and just having cats falling (laughs) out of my roof. I don't know. I guess the outside part I didn't really pick up on. Oh man. Fact three. (laughs) Lead cups were used to drink ale or whiskey. The combination would sometimes knock them out for a couple of days. Someone walking along the road would take them for dead and prepare them for burial. 
They were laid out on the kitchen table for a couple of days, and the family would gather around and eat and drink and wait to see if they would wake up. Hence the custom of holding awake. How messed up is that? Oh my gosh, lead, you said? Yeah. Oh, no wonder. Oh my God. How long would they wait? That's so tragic. Well, we're, I mean, okay, you have to keep in mind that funerals today and death in general, were phobic of death. People are not comfortable with half of life. That's true. Um, and so you have to think back to previous generations. Like, I'm trying to come up with a specific number, but I'm not great at that. But you have to go back far enough in time where um, losing someone was a community thing that you would hold an open casket funeral for a week to allow people to have enough time to come back in from out of town to pay their respects to the point that they used to reinforce the floors with extra beams in the basement for where the coffin was being held up. So it was wow. it, it was very, very different. Mm. And, I mean, the 1500s is a little even more messed up because we're, uh, we haven't talked about the body trade yet, but we will. Um, but, like, in the 1500s, we're just getting to the point where um, we're allowing people to, um, to conduct dissections. So there's this separate part of... Um, how we view death forming right at this juncture. So it's okay. Oh, enough. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> mm -hmm. Were you finished with your facts? Yes. Okay. So that's just kind of setting the scene. Oh my gosh. Holy wakes. That's, I love that kind of stuff. There's a name for, um, is it an anecdote? There's a name for like those phrases, that type of. Oh yeah. Thing. Okay, so getting back to it. The belief in the magical properties of the alicorn was so strong that in Venice, horns were thrown into the palace well to prevent or cure poisoning. Horns were used to make sword hilts, scabbards, scepters, and crowns. In 1671, Christian V of Denmark had a royal throne made consisting entirely of unicorn horn. Fun fact, it actually still exists, and you can be seen in the Copenhagen Rosenborg Castle. The building of the throne was made possible only due to the sheer number of narwhal horns that washed up on Scandinavian beaches and were found by his naval captain. So otherwise, you, no wow. one would possibly be able to collect enough unicorn yeah. horn to make a chair otherwise. So I thought that was super interesting. But not once did they, did anybody in my research seem to have stopped and written down. We find these on the beaches a lot. Like, do, do they think unicorns perished in the sea and they washed up on shore? I didn't seem to see anybody questioning why unicorn horns were on beaches. Yeah, that's a good point. It, it is, it's just one of those things yeah. that you don't think about. Okay, so back to the rarity. Speaking of it, uh, the rarity of alicorns and the sheer number of uses they had at the time um, meant that the remedy, um, in terms of selling it in an apothecary, was attached to a rather high price tag. And there are two prominent examples that I could find. In 1553, the King of France's personal specimen slash collection was valued at 20,000 pounds or roughly 24,000 U.S. dollars. And in 1609, a unicorn horn was worth, and I quote, half a city. An apothecary sold it for 24 pounds an ounce. In USD, that's 29. But we're going to convert it into modern money because I don't think, you know, old-timey money means a whole lot to us right now. So in modern terms, the King of France's collection that I mentioned mm -hmm. would be valued at over $10.5 million. Holy shite. And if you were looking to purchase the alicorn from the apothecary, which was the second example, the price tag would be nearly $6,000 per ounce. Per ounce. Per wow. ounce. So I had to quick Google it because this is another one of those. Holy crap. Um, so the quick Googling showed that narwhal tusks are known to grow to weigh as much as 22 pounds, which is half of one of my children, and that's 352 ounces. That is so much money. Wow. So much money. I can't... put That puts it into perspective, that throne yeah, made of them. I mean... That's more than worth its weight in gold. Yeah. 
Dang. It's crazy. So for centuries, unicorn horn was worth 11 times its weight in gold, speaking of it. It's no wonder that much of the population couldn't afford it. Not that it was real or that it would have worked. Fit for a king and affordable only by his coffers. That being said, people are super resourceful, always, so they did find substitutes. Gemstones were used in place of unicorn horn to detect poison or cure symptoms. Um, the gems would be waved over the food or set into drinking cups. They used emerald, coral, aquamarine, and amethyst. Um, and another use of these stones was to inscribe the image of a scorpion. I read that it's because Scorpio from the Zodiac is a water sign, and it was believed to offer cooling effects to counteract hot poisoning. They believed that poison was hot. Okay. It goes back to, um, actually, I think we're going to talk about it in just a second, but a system of medicine back then that was popular at the time. That's, that's, it sounds really crazy. It'll, it'll actually just get worse. Um, so, okay, we, mm, okay, I'm great uh, segue in here that doesn't exist. So my notes say one such king, we were talking about kings earlier, would be King Henry VIII, who took the throne of England in 1509 at the young age of just 18 years old. He was heralded as a Renaissance prince because of his interest in science, music, and the arts, and he was known for being a bit of a hypochondriac. Arguably one of the most famous kings in English or world history, he's most notably remembered for having six wives. I mean, they made a mnemonic after it. That's how well known his wives were in the saga of all of his marriages. So it goes divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. And that's how you study Tudor history. Wow. Cheery. <laughs> um, art, uh, Mm-mm. Nope. So he was remembered for having six wives. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Thank you. Um, and his split from Rome because they wouldn't allow for the annulment when he wanted to divorce Catherine and the subsequent establishment of the Church of England. Uh, ultimately, two of his six wives were brought up on charges of adultery and treason and sentenced to death. Um, a couple died, one after childbirth. Um, but for the episode, I really want to focus on the king's health. I just kind of get... It's hard not to talk about Tudor history and not talk about Catherine and Anne Boleyn and and Jane and making myself into a more more of a dork. So to set the scene again, we're gonna look at the years of 1509 to 1547 when King Henry VIII reigned. At this point in time, only 10% of Tudors live beyond the age of 40, and all of the mayor pl major players are active throughout his reign. We have TB, so we have tuberculosis, malaria, typhus, dysentery, influenza, smallpox, scurvy. There's no shortage of diseases and germs. Um, we don't have germ theory. Um, we have no understanding of sicknesses and diseases. And this is where the four humors comes into play. It's kind of weird and difficult to get a grasp on if you're not familiar with it because it sounds so freaking out there. Um, but what they did was they called it uh, the four humors. There are supposedly four that exist in your body, blood, bile, which black and yellow, and phlegm. And being healthy was all about maintaining a balance between these four humors. Ugh. So in order to get better, you had to adjust said humors to your body. So they would, um, I think I have it written down. Yeah. So it basically, it essentially came down to bleeding, diuretics, emetics, enemas, and laxatives. Because every reaction that you would get from one of these, they saw as positive. Because they were seeing change. Oh, the, no, the whole no news is good news thing, not a thing back then. <laughs> I feel really bad for all of these people because besides the four humors being the main way that we dealt with disease, um, we you have to add in um, the quackery of the age, the superstitions at the time, the legends, especially with the plagues running rampant everywhere. Um, they had folk remedies, and all of this went into your diagnosis. Um, 
including the season, which, okay, that's kind of, you know, but also your zodiac sign. Uh, of course. <laughs> so really it, it kind of, it comes off as overall kind of quacky and, and it, yeah. it is, um, kind of difficult to understand, but if you want to learn more about it, cause I'm not a doctor, I appreciate, um, Dr. Sydney from Sawbones. They do a whole episode on the four humors and it explains it in a way that makes it easier to comprehend. Cause I think that's what it is. It's a lack of comprehension. It sounds, well, this is, I mean, this is what one of the first times you've heard of it. Yeah. It sounds gross and weird, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's really, yeah. Kind of gross. I do. If you like to gross people out too, that's another thing that, <laughs> you know, go listen to it. Um, when it came to the king being as incredibly wealthy as he was and being royalty, no price was too much. No recipe was too rare because the health of the king was the power of the monarchy. He symbolized power and therefore his health dictated the stability of the country. And throughout most of his rule, he had no male heir to succeed him if he were to fall ill. And he was ill quite often throughout his life. So we're to the fun part in here where we're going to do a bit of a choose your own adventure. And I'm going to let Kale pick between listening to information about poison first mm. or we can go and we can talk about the privy chambers we can talk about 1500s toilets or we can talk about some back history about king henry the eighth himself that's tough what do but, you feel like listening to first well looking at this i saw the word goose and the poison thing so i'm gonna <laughs> go with that first because i love geese i saw a bunch crossing the road the other day and i thought of you Despite I love the fact that stops are so to let them cross the road. It's just they, they don't it know makes what the day. fuck they're doing. They really do. If they weren't so gross, I would find it more endearing. <laughs> so, okay, yeah, there's a small goose reference. Don't get uh, too excited. Mm. So, poison. The biggest threat to royalty was poison. Arsenic was the main poison to be worried about. It's my favorite to talk about. We'll talk about it a lot more. Um, so arsenic is odorless, tasteless, and mixes well in food or water. It's also easy to obtain. Anyone can get it. So to drink from a, a corn, yep, a corn made of unicorn horn, a cup made of unicorn horn, or other type of magical, mystical goblet was to cancel out the poison that you found out, you found in that drink to kind of nullify it. Narwhal tusks, which could grow up to nine feet long and could be found on the beaches of Greenland, were often used for this purpose. However, being that unicorns were fantasy creatures and narwhal tusks were both in high demand and low supply, there were other measures royalty took against poisonings. Perhaps the most well-known is the Bazaar Stone. Wow, if you can hear that, I have, oh, ah, the pitter-patter of small feet in large combat boots. Big combat boots? Sure. Darn. Come on, it's a Firefly reference. Get with it. Oh, dang it. It's the children marching <laughs> through with their hippo feet. So, perhaps the most well-known was the Bazaar Stone, popularized in literature today by... You know this? Yes, you do. It's not in there. It's not written in there. It's your favorite series. Oh, Harry Potter? Yeah. They use the Bazaar Stone to cure poison. Was it Ron that got poisoned? It's from the belly of a goat, usually, is I think what they explained oh, it as. Oh, yeah. yeah. It yes. counteracts. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. So it's, that oh. is, th yeah, it's, it's gross, but that's the most recent, um, like, reference and the most popular one gotcha. recently that that's probably the way most people have heard of it, if they've heard of it at all. And this is where your goose reference come in, comes in, because these bazaars range in size from a pebble to a goose egg, which I guess averages at four and a half inches. Oh my god. And they do have a history of being used in medicine. These stones, which are in fact gallstones, mineral concentrations, masses of hair, and other indigestible substances that form in the stomach of an animal, a four-hooved animal. And they could be ground into powder and added into food or drink. 
That is just so upsetting. That you you so look upsetting. really grossed out. Oh my god. <laughs> so alternatively, the powder could be set into rings, which you could wave over your food again to detect the poison, or toss it in your goblet to detect the poison and then nullify the poison. But if they waved it over it, what would happen to it if it was poisoned? Might do something similar to the unicorn horn, sweat, change mm. color, turn hot. I think it, the idea was that it was magic, it was mystical, so it would do something magical or mystical. The accounts vary widely, I think probably because nobody knew what the fuck they were talking about. <laughs> So, Lore at the time said that if there was poison in the cup, the wine could start boiling. So, that's one thing, but that's that's only one. So, if you wave it over, maybe it would sweat, maybe it would change color. But because bazaars are relatively rare, they only find one or two per hundred animals. And again, that's only four hooved animals. And it's believed that a significant portion of the stones on the market at the time were fake. Whether it was the cost or the lack of bazaars to go around, man-made stones called Goa stones became popular. They consisted of sapphires, pearls, rubies, musk, ambergris, and gold, which was ground likely with a mortar and pestle. Then a small amount of real bazaar, or was it, was added into the mixture with rose water and turned into a paste, then formed into an like a little egg-shaped individual serving tablet, kind of. Oh um, and then they could be polished. They look, yeah, I'll include pictures again. They were, they were display pieces. They weren't just medicine. It was almost what you would expect to see those gorgeous, hollowed out Russian decorated eggs. Hmm. Is it, is it Russian? You, I can't remember. I've seen a local artists work display before. Did I'm you know what sure. I'm talking no, about? I'm not sure. Oh, they're beautiful. They hollow out an egg and they paint the outside in this very gorgeous, intricate designs. And they have little stands wow. that they sit on because they're, they're gorgeous. They're pieces of art, but people did that with the Goa stones huh. and they would have like f little feet kind of things that held them up for their little cabinet of wonders. <laughs> so another type Another type of stone for poison that wasn't really a stone was the toadstone. Misleading. What was believed to be a gem previously nestled in the toad's forehead. Another account said it was taken out of their belly. Um, it actually turns out that it was fossilized teeth from extinct fish or sharks. I really struggle to think of fish with teeth for some reason. <laughs> it weirds me out. But these toadstones could be ground up and added into wine or goblets to detect and neutralize poison. Again, fun fact though, this is awesome. The calcium carbonate found in fossils when mixed with arsenic neutralizes the poison. Wow. It actually acts as a cleanup clue. Mm-hmm. Who did it? A cleanup crew through a process called chelation, and the practice is still used today by doctors to neutralize heavy metal poisoning and arsenic poisoning. They got one right. Yeah, they did. It's rare, but uh, actually, I've got another one coming up, too, for one episode. This might be a record. Dang. For many years, royalty voluntarily consumed theriacs, which were potions that contained poison-preventing ingredients. What went into them specifically differed a lot between who was prescribing it, where and when they were, and what was popular medicine at the time. But overall, it seems to be non-poisonous ingredients like rhubarb, St. John's wort, sulfur, myrrh, lavender, garlic, lemongrass, charcoal, parsley, black pepper, cloves, cinnamon, and wine and opium. Combined, ground, smashed, hammered, and made into a paste that was held together with honey or something similar, and then it was cut into individual dose sizes, roughly the size of an almond. This is what's individual doses. I totally botched it. Goa stones weren't made into individual doses, like I said. They were egg-shaped, and they were polished and put on a display. Gotcha. Yeah, my brain mixed it. Yeah. yeah, my brain mixed it up. It's, it's these... Um, theriacs that gotcha. they that they make um and then so scientists recently discovered again if i could do editing in our podcast i would put in a drum roll <laughs> uh, they discovered some important and surprising facts garlic and sulfur can neutralize arsenic in the bloodstream charcoal as we know absorbs and filters poison they use it now to pump stomachs of people who have overdosed or consumed. I did not know that. Oh, you didn't? Yeah, that's no. what they, when 
if you um, ever hear of somebody having to go to the hospital because they and they pump a stomach because there's too much alcohol or too many pills or some kind of poison, it's charcoal. Oh, wow. um, it acts as a natural filter. The, um, the issue that is going on right now, though, is charcoal is becoming a fad of for dyeing things black. I, I've seen a couple of, like, potions, like drink mixes and oh, stuff yeah. that use it. Charcoal soaks up medication. Oh. including birth control if you take oh. a contraceptive pill. Oh, that's not So you good. have to be careful that you don't use charcoal in a drink. Um, and what you can use instead if you want to get the black, I've actually looked at getting it for um, Halloween, the same shimmery powder we used for your wedding, the, the luster dust. You oh, can yeah. get it from any cake supply company um, on Etsy. Um, and you just mix in a little bit and it makes it look like a potion. And the black that they use is, I mean, it's dye of some kind, but it's not charcoal. It won't mess with your medication that you're on. Hmm. So I just got to <laughs> find my place because I got off stream. Oh, yeah. So the charcoal. Then we move on to St. John's wort, which can reduce the effects of thousands of chemicals by aiding the liver which I didn't know. I thought that was really interesting because I've read um, multiple times that St. John's wort um, is also used for depression in yep. the past. So I, I was familiar with it, but not uh, what it all of what it did, apparently. And then garlic, cinnamon, and St. John's wort are antibacterial. Myrrh is actually an antiseptic and analgesic. And these potions weren't just seen as poison prevention. In many ways, they were considered the multivitamin of the Renaissance era. Wow. They were supposed to be like Flintstones chewable in the 90s. Yum. Take one a day. <laughs> Speaking of one... We're down to uh, the Privy Chamber or King Henry VIII's background. Let's go King Henry VIII. King Henry VIII. He's my most favorite royalty. I have weird favorites. Do you have a favorite or do you not know? Sir Patrick Wilson. <laughs> now you're going to say Patrick Stewart. <laughs> oh my gosh, that would have been amazing. Okay, so from a young age, Henry showed interest and skill in all of his courses. He was royalty. He was educated by the best that were specifically dedicated to him. Uh, but like most kids, it was noted that he had little patience. Surprise! As he grew older, his studies included a regular rotation of activities such as shooting, hunting, and hawking, singing and playing the flute and dancing, wrestling, writing ballads, and jousting. The king was well-educated, like I said, and all records point to him being an intelligent person. He spoke multiple languages. Um, I mean, he was privately tutored. He ran the country. Not that that qualifies people. <coughs> but um, so <laughs> he never did seem to outgrow that lack of patience. And as an adult, it showed in his attention span or lack thereof. And he was easily bored, which I can imagine was not something people wanted. Yeah. So to the gentlemen and grooms that he was comfortable, familiar, friendly with, or whatever, he was known to be generous, sometimes excessively so, um, and could show a surprising amount of tenderness, but it was wishy-washy. He didn't always know how he was going to respond. Sometimes in history, people thought they were going to have their heads cut off because they were he was going to shoot the messenger, and he was short of jovial with it and then other times would freak out when no one thought it was going to happen so uh, if you found yourself on his bad side essentially you had to be prepared to experience his other side which was ruthless intolerant and impatient mm. these personality traits bled into every aspect of the king's life but some like paranoia had a head start it's believed that the sudden death of his older brother, who was the first in line to inherit the crown, and his own father's obsession with his health and his only heir's health created a cycle in which King Henry VIII became a hypochondriac himself and not only was obsessed with his own health, but also of his offspring. And for much of his reign, he didn't have an heir Females weren't heirs. His daughters right. would never be king. So he was even more paranoid first about making a male heir and then about the male heir surviving because he did have, he did lose a son in young infancy. Uh, and he became obsessive over the health of him and his male family, I guess you should say. 
and his lifestyle and the era that he lived in led him to sustain numerous injuries over his life, and he came down with just as many illnesses. I've got a partial list of the main injuries and illnesses that he suffered from his life, and it goes like this. Smallpox, malaria, he nearly drowned. He received a bad jousting injury, which would actually continue to bother him his entire life that bad. He was diagnosed with varicose ulcers, malaria for a second time, another jousting injury. Speaking of, it might have been that one that injured him, you know, for a lot longer. Um, ulcers fistulas, which is an abnormal connection between two parts inside the body, and it includes organs, acute constipation, severe infection from the fistulas, and ulcers again. How did he even last as long as he did? That's crazy. Probably because he had those people specifically around him to fulfill very individual roles, so he was provided for and looked over in like every sense of the the way but i mean i'll leave official diagnoses to professionals for what it's worth he does seem to be obsessive about his health and his son's health um but also hello it's the 1500s i mean it sounds terrifying there are diseases everywhere plagues epidemics people are dying of flu cold diarrhea What's not to be terrified right, about? Yeah. And over the course of his reign, his health continued to decline, not surprisingly, given the list of injuries that he sustained and the diseases he came down with, but his mental state also seemed to decline as well. His pompous attitude and worldview turned into a noteworthy, lifelong temperament that worsened whenever he was ill or in pain, which happened a lot, it seems like, which understandably, but he did seem very temperamental. And as the years went on, this occurred more and more frequently. The ulcer on his leg was especially bad, and it was noted as having caused considerable pain after an infection started, and it required an operation. Ouch. Um, This was back in a time where, like, for gum disease, they would just cauterize it, so we're not talking gentle care at all. But this specific condition, uh, alongside a particularly nasty jousting injury that I mentioned, meant that he depended on a tram later in life. It essentially was an early version of a wheelchair, and he used it to get around his galleries and chambers. Because he was also unable to use the stairs, they had a pulley system invented that was used to raise or lower the platform for the tram and its rider. And lastly, his deteriorating eyesight required glasses, which they called gazings, which I think that's adorable. I love that. Um, And they just clipped onto your nose. I mean, I think our dad has a pair that are like that. Yes, he sure does. (laughs) (laughs) And then in... 1547, King Henry VIII died at the age of 55. He lived beyond the average life expectancy of someone at his time, but it's obvious that it wasn't without its difficulties. It was two days before the general public was informed of his passing, which was enough time for the monarchy to cross their T's and dot their I's and get Henry's coveted heir, Edward, ready for the throne. There are many things that can be said about the king and his reign, not all of which are safe for work, hopefully some of which you learned here today. So now you know a whole new side of royalty. It might be the backside, but hey. (laughs) (laughs) And in case you wanted this to end on a positive note, here's one more fact about our favorite ruler that you might not know. King Henry VIII was an accomplished musician, and a song that he wrote titled Pastime with Good Company was played throughout Europe during the Renaissance. Now you know, and it also makes me wonder if it's on YouTube. Yeah, I don't know. Probably. Probably. Probably everything's on YouTube. That's very true. Mm-hmm. All right, so speaking of being on the backside. <laughs> We're up to the privy chamber. Yeah. Our last one. Let's end on some toilets. Toilets. All right. So revisiting pretty quickly some of the diseases that I mentioned earlier, specifically typhus, dysentery, which you might recognize. Oh yeah. Oregon Trail and influenza all cause diarrhea, especially the first two. And without proper handling of food and accommodations to store food, especially meat, it wasn't uncommon for people to get food poisoning. That's really understandable. 
but it just caused more diarrhea. And it could be nearly indistinguishable from the diarrhea caused by the diseases or being poisoned. So you really, you didn't have any way to know. And as if these conditions and diseases and infections, not to mention the medical practices at the time, were not enough to convince you how much people were pooping, let me tell you, it's a lot. <laughs> A lot. So much so that the first factoid I ever remember learning about this specific King Henry and what ultimately led me to doing all this research on him was that it wasn't abnormal for him to hold court inside his privy chamber while he was receiving an enema. And we're going to, while we're here, I just want to talk about enemas really quickly. There's, I think it's one of those things that has a stigma. So we're going to be really open about talking about what they are, what they used to be. Um, So today, enemas, for the most part, are discreet. They're easy to use and they're gentle on your system. They come in single-use disposable containers that dispense saline laxative. That's not what they were like back in the 16th century. The type of enema that King Henry would have received in comparison was a contraption. A Rube Goldberg machine. Yeah. There we go. His was... Okay. It What it contained was a concoction, likely boiled mash, that was strained, and then the fluid was put into an empty pig's bladder, and then a tube was fed into the bladder, and then the other end was fed into the rectum and then squeezed. Oh, my so God. So you have to imagine that this, you're not at home with your nice plushy Charmin, you know, and <laughs> got some little privacy while you need to use a laxative. This is like you're, you've got all your buddies that you pay to be your friends around you. Well, you've got a tube in your ass. Yeah. 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 Nice. And so now we're going to go back to laxatives and the privy chamber. And I'm going to try my best to explain the king's living situation in the 1500s. I wanted to prepare you just a little bit earlier. And I mentioned how many fucking places King Henry VIII lived. Because there are inconsistencies in terms of how many rooms he used, what the rooms were called, not only over his entire reign, but from castle to palace and back again. Um, So it it was kind of hard to keep track of. Um, So just let me know if anything needs some clarification. So the king's suite of rooms served as a multi-purpose area. It was part living and entertaining area, part sleeping chamber, and part privy. And in here, you would find a few specific types of his personal entourage. The first group, known as the gentlemen of the chamber, were hired to spend time with the king and be his minions. The second group, with a slightly more elevated status, were the grooms of the chamber, who were tasked with befriending and assisting the king in simple tasks. I also read that they would play games with him, recite poetry, they would entertain him and keep him from growing bored. And then the final and most respected and coveted position, believe it or not, was the chief gentleman of the chamber, a.k.a. the groom of the king's stool, which... Yes, means what you think it means. This was the top position in the king's privy chamber. The innermost chamber, so-called for the waist closet it contained, is where the groom was responsible for monitoring his highness's bowel movements, wiping the royal ass. There is some controversy about this. I don't think there's records that say whether or not he actually did. I have to imagine that he did. I just can't imagine it not happening. And then also they acted as a go-between go between for the king's health and his doctor. So he would keep him appraised if things changed. Mm. He was also responsible for providing a wash basin with water and towels for cleanup, which I found especially interesting and I think lends credence to him being a hypochondriac because people didn't wash their hands back yeah. then. Um, I mean... Times where if you scratched at something and your hands were filthy enough, you can get an infection in the scratch because of what's on your hands and under your nails. That's the Ugh. same time frame. So, neat and tidy. And then, so there's two specific properties of the king out of all of them that kind of give us a picture into what these privy rooms looked like beyond just who was in them. The walls are covered in tapestries. The room is furnished including maybe two or three tables. There's a cupboard for plates and goblets and other dishes and display items that he wanted to display in his privy chamber. And some chairs. 
and musical instruments could be found there, and it wasn't unusual for them to be played at all. Wow. And over the time, over time, the groom of the stool took on additional responsibilities, including helping him to dress and undress, overseeing the privy purse, which essentially made him the king's personal treasurer, and the safety of the treasures that called the privy chamber home. Each one at each castle or palace had a different variety, but there was some type of elements of the king's interests and tastes and collection in each one. So on top of being a highly sought after position, the person that holds that title was typically showered with gifts and gratuity, including land, titles, the king's old clothes. And I say old with air quotes because his clothing was made from only the best and finest materials available to royalty, of course. So silk, gems, even if they were too large, these gowns were worth more than they would ever make in multiple lifetimes. Um, and then the last responsibility that I read that the groom of the stool took over towards the end of King Henry's life was that they took over responsibility for the dry stamp, which is exactly what it sounds like. It was the stamp that contained his royal signature, and it was used on official documents instead of him having to write things out because he had so many mobility issues that extended down to his hands and writing became difficult towards the end. Makes sense. It seems overall that it's a fair bet to say that the groom of the stool was more trusted and depended on than we give them credit for, Can, especially considering most people don't even know that exists. Yeah, I had no idea. Now, granted, I didn't, we didn't learn much English history in high school, which was, I won't admit how many years ago, but I didn't know this was a thing. I... It's so interesting. So for anyone wondering, the personnel the queen utilized was referred to as the lady of the bedchamber. Slightly more elegant way to put, yes. to refer to the people that helped you poop. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's it for these. Uh, we got to come up with a name for what we call this trifecta of the three topics that we put together. Yeah. But, Anybody has any, any ideas? Yeah, I have... Some? I have no ideas, but I do have books that I read to um, give me information for all the research that I just wanted to give a quick mention to. For the Fantastic Beasts part, there were two books that I consulted. One is the Encyclopedia of Things That Never Were by Michael Page, and the second is Giants, Monsters, and Dragons by Carol Rose. And if you're interested in reading more about King Henry VIII's life, I can recommend you two books. Tudors, The History of England from Henry VIII to Elizabeth I by Peter Ackroyd, and Henry VIII and the Men Who Made Him by Tracy Borman. Awesome. They're both very in-depth, so if that's an interest of yours, <laughs> yeah. Little dry for my taste, but tons of information, so don't miss out if it is something you're interested in. Cool. And I think we did the, uh, our little icebreaker at the beginning. Did we want to do our own ode to the odd at the end? Sure. Do you have something weird or... No? You don't have anything weird to share with me? Not right now, I don't think. I don't know. I just figured we'd We just had a lot of weird. We did just have a lot of weird. Okay, we can skip it. My brain's, like, filling it in. Anxiety brain for the win. So, we will see everybody back here in a week, then. Yeah. We'll be back next Friday for another episode. And you can find us on social media pretty much everywhere. Instagram. Twitter. Twitter's at podities underscore. Instagram is at an ode to the odd. We are now on Apple Podcasts, yep. Stitcher, Anchor, and Spotify. And Spotify. And our email address is up and running. There were some issues with it last week. I got locked out of it, but it's taken care of. So we can now be reached at podities at an ode to the odd.com. And if you have a suggestion for, uh, the trifecta that we're trying to name what we're doing with this, please let us know. Otherwise, stay strange. Yeah. Stay weird. <laughs> and we'll see you next week.
Now, 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 now